0: When we come to Isaiah chapter 41, because picking up the same theme, the same flow from chapter 40, Isaiah is speaking to people decades beyond him, prophesying to them about how God will restore them in the tough times they're going through. Again, the problems haven't even happened yet, but God's dishing out the comfort even before the problems have come. And the problem that they faced was that the Babylonians were going to come and conquer the nation of Judah and conquer the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple and take the the Jewish people off into exile. And they would languish in exile for some 70 years until God would bring them back. And the comfort in the return from exile is the broader theme for what we're talking about tonight in Isaiah chapter 41. But It's fascinating how Isaiah presents it to us. Let's take a look here, verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah to chapter 41. We read, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. You know what the setting is here? It's like a courtroom. God's saying, let's come near together for judgment. You know, it's, the, it's not the people's court, it's God's court. It's not Judge Judy, it's Judge Jesus. And he says, you come out. Now, this isn't so much, though, a court of law to determine, as in the great white throne judgment, you know, eternal destiny. This is almost having the idea of a civil court. And God's going to settle an issue in this court here, in, in Isaiah chapter 41. He's going to settle an issue more than settle somebody's destiny. Now, who is he speaking to? Look at it there in verse 1. He says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands. Well, what are the coastlands? Well, the Hebrew word translated coastlands here in Isaiah 41.1 is also translated islands or isles in other passages. It's also translated with broader words like territory in Isaiah chapter 20. The idea is probably best expressed as distant lands, In other words, Isaiah is looking out all over, I mean, as far as the eye can see and even beyond what the eye can see. And he's looking out over all those people and he's saying, hey, listen up, the Lord's calling you, all you nations, the whole face of the earth. Now, again, let's remind ourselves that at this point in time, the people of God were roughly, not strictly, but roughly restricted to a geography, right? The nation of Israel. Outside of the nation of Israel. The distant lands were pagans, right? And so he's calling on the pagan idol-worshipping world. He's saying, hey, all you people in the far, far distant lands, listen up now. He says, keep silence before me, O coastlands. Right, you come into the court, what's the first thing? You know, you stand up, all rise for the judge, and what? Does everybody chit-chat and talk to their neighbor? Hey, hey, buddy. No, it's quiet. The judge comes in, and everybody's silent. The judge is entered. And what does the judge say? I like to put these words here in the second line of verse 1 in the judge's mouth. And let the people renew their strength. In other words, if you're coming into the courtroom with God, you'd better renew your strength. Now what's interesting about this is we draw that idea from the previous chapter, verse 31, right? Take a look at, at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. You know this scripture. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, are the ones that he's speaking to in verse 1, those that wait upon the Lord? No, they're the ones in the distant lands, in the coastlands. These are idol-worshipping pagans. And so it's probably an ironic phrase that Isaiah is using here. He's probably basically saying, listen, uh, you know, you, you... you can renew your strength in your pagan gods if you can. Do the best you can. But you better prepare somehow if you're going to come into my court. And then he says here again, verse 1, Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Come on, let's go. We're going to have a time of judgment together. We are going to settle an issue. So God is going to invite the idols and the idol worshiping world to come into his courtroom, and they're going to settle this issue about idol worship. Now, how does he do it? Look at it beginning here at verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. What's he mean by all this? Again, look at verse 2, first line. Who raised up one from the east? Okay, somebody raised up somebody, right? Now, who's the one who raised him up? The Lord. Who's the one who was raised up? The one from the east. Now, when you start getting into this question, who's the one who was raised up? Oh, you, know, you might think, well, raised up must be the resurrection of Jesus. No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. There's a few commentators thinking think he might be talking about Jesus. It's, it's really probably not. It's very, very interesting. This is one of these things that is probably far more interesting to me than it is to you. But as you study Bible commentators and go through, there's a remarkable division of opinion as to who the person is that Isaiah chapter 41, verses 2 through 4 is referring to. And might I tell you who the two leading candidates are, okay? You have the first leading candidate being Abraham, the second leading candidate being Cyrus, king of Persia. You say, well, I can't think of two more different kind of fellows, But, you know, it's interesting because it's a very warm debate among commentators. And you see how, how, well, take a look here. Who raised up one from the east? Abraham came from the east, from Babylonia. So did Cyrus. He came from the eastern lands. Who in righteousness called him to his feet? In other words, this righteous man who came up to his feet. Was Abraham righteous? Yes, and did you know that Cyrus was a righteous man before God? Yes, he was, the king of the Persians. This was a man that Daniel had a remarkable ministry to. This was the man who, when God used him to overcome the Babylonian Empire, he set the exiles from Judea and Jerusalem, let him go back. Maybe I should go back and kind of paint this picture and tell you, give you a timeline of who this fellow Cyrus is. Here we have the days of Isaiah, right? About a hundred years from the time of Isaiah, the Babylonians conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and the land of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, they take away all the stuff, and they send the people of God into exile in the land of Babylon. It's what we would call today in the modern ethnic cleansing, right? They just removed all the Jewish people. They left some of the poorest of the poor behind, but that was about it. Anybody of any kind of note or worth or anything, they removed from Judea and they took them to Babylon, all right? That was the great exile a hundred years after the time of uh, Isaiah's prophecy. Well, after 70 years of exile, in the last few years of that time, the Babylonians were conquered by a confederation between the Medes and the Persians, And the man who brought the Medes and the Persians together was King Cyrus. And Cyrus conquered over the Babylonians. And when he became king, Daniel the prophet, who was still alive at that time, he came up to Cyrus, and you know what he showed him? We're going to see this in later chapters of Isaiah. I almost feel bad because I feel like I'm giving away a secret. He went up and he showed him where Isaiah prophesied the rise of Cyrus by name hundred years before he was ever born. And that turned Cyrus's heart to the Lord in a remarkable way. And so when Cyrus turned his heart towards the Lord, he said, well, what can I do for the Jewish people? And he allowed them to return back to Jerusalem, to return back to Judea. So in many ways, Cyrus was a righteous man. So look at our description so far. Verse two, Abraham and Cyrus, both from the east. Abraham and Cyrus, both in a sense, righteous. Uh, Look at the next part of verse 2. Who gave the nations before him, who made him rule over kings, who gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Well, you would think, well, certainly that applies to a great king like Cyrus, right? Conquering with his armies everywhere. Do you understand that applies to Abraham too? Do you remember when a confederation of five kings kidnapped Lot, Abraham's nephew? And Abraham said, I'm not standing for this. And he marshaled together all his servants, which is about 300 servants, which shows you the kind of wealth that Abraham had. A very wealthy man if you've got 300 people working for you. And he goes out and he conquers those kings and defeats them. So this could be speaking of Abraham just as well. And then it says in verse 4, "...who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning." Well, that's speaking of the Lord as the one who did that. The Lord performed it. The Lord did it. And the Lord called these generations from the beginning. But who's the one from the east that he's speaking about? Is it Cyrus or is it Abraham? You know what I think we're dealing with? We're dealing with is the Lord in this passage looking to his work in the past, right? That would be Abraham. Or is he looking to his work in the future? That would be Cyrus, Hey, it's a tough matter of biblical interpretation. I think either answer could be correct according to the context. But you want to know my opinion, don't you? Well, even if you don't, I'm going to give it to you. If you had to put me in the corner and say which one is it, Abraham or Cyrus, I'd say it's Abraham. Oh, wow. Let me tell you why. Oh, there's commotion. Oh, it's a hubbub. Wow. Because this chapter very plainly and very powerfully speaks of Cyrus later in the chapter. I don't want to get all mixed up, but again, this may be a lot more interesting to me than it is to you, but let's go ahead to verse 22. Verse 22 of Isaiah chapter 41. Now, again, I'm I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, so we're going to come back to this verse, but, but verse 22 of Isaiah 41. The Lord says, Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Does that have to do with the future or the past? Future. It's not a trick question. Future. Okay, now take a look at the next line. Let them show the former things what they were. Does that have to do with the future or the past? The past. So God is questioning in this verse the idols. And he's saying, can you predict for me the future or can you explain for me the past? And they can't. Now, Cyrus is plainly mentioned in verse 25. Look at verse 25. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name. Now, as for reasons we'll get into when we get into that text, that is a reference to Cyrus. Now, because verse 22 challenges the idols on the basis of both the future and the past, And because the future is represented very plainly by Cyrus in verse 25, I think back in verse 2, it's speaking of Abraham as the representative from the past. Because, my friends, everything belongs to God, the past and the future, with the present sandwiched in between. It all belongs to the Lord our God. Take a look at verse 4. Who has performed it and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first. And with the last, I am he. Do you understand that, my friends? That from beginning to end, the Lord is the Lord God over all history. Now, I don't know what troubles you more this evening, your future or your past. Maybe for some of you, your past is extremely troubling. You think of the years gone by. You you think of what's gone wrong. You you think of this course you could have taken or that course. You think of this tragedy or calamity. And your past really troubles you. And I tell you, the Lord God is still the Lord of your past. And his sovereign hand was not neglecting His, his work in your life at that time. Oh, you may not be able to understand it. You may not be able to see it. But God knew what he was doing even at that time in his life, even in the difficult or painful things that he allowed. What about the future? Maybe some of you tonight, you're all bound up about the future. You don't know where it's going. You're all anxious. You look at the roads in front of you, it just makes your head spin. You don't know what's going to happen with the future. It's all right, you don't have to, the Lord does. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Friends, this means that God also has authority over everything in between. And this means that there absolutely is a plan of God for human history. Do you understand that? Does it really grip and sink down into your heart that God directs the path of human events toward His design fulfillment? Our lives are not given over to blind fate. Our lives are not given over to random meaninglessness or to endless cycles with no resolution. It just keeps going and going and going. You just face the same day. And no resolution. It's just the same things over. No! God is moving human history, and might I say, your life also in a direction. It's directed by the Lord God, who's the first and the last. Francis is always such a relevant question. Many people who walk around every day have no sense of any direction that God has for human history or for their lives. They feel that their life is just a collection of random, meaningless, undirected events. They feel that their life is like a cycle. They're, they're, they're a hamster on the treadmill just going around and around and around. The scenery changes for about as long as it takes for that wheel to spin around and that's it. No, friends, there's a God in heaven who directs human events and it always moves to a final resolution and fulfillment. Do you realize that your understanding of that affects almost everything in your life? If you live under the modern way of thinking that says that that mankind just appeared on this earth by a bunch of lucky accidents... You know, a, a bolt of lightning hit a, hit a pool of cosmic soup and a little germ of life appeared. And by the most absolutely fascinating collection of, of luck, it developed into to a human being. But there's no God, there's no direction, there's no hand guiding human history. Friends, if that's what you believe, as many people do in our culture today, if that is what you believe, I guarantee you, that there is a hidden shadow of desperation in your life. Because you realize that your life means nothing. Your life has as much meaning as a snail's life. But if there's a God in heaven, if he has a plan for human history, if he directs human events, if he directs human lives, then our lives have meaning. Our lives have importance. Then every day, every hour of the day is important. It's directed towards something meaningful that's going to last not just for time, but for eternity. And we fit into that figure of of first and last. We're in there somewhere, friends. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus takes the same title of first and last in the book of Revelation? Maybe we should turn there, just so you see it with your own eyes. Keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 41. Turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. The reason I want you to see it is because I think this is the most wonderful proofs of the deity of Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, you'll get that knock on your door, and it's somebody with some magazines they want to give you. Maybe the Watchtower or the Awake magazine. Or maybe it's somebody, uh, you know, uh, a... 18-year-old kid with a badge that says, elder so-and-so. And uh, they want to talk to you about, you know, a family home evening. Well, I think scriptures like this are great to have at your command at a time like that. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he, sa- he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, who's speaking there? Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? Well, because it's in red in my Bible. No, 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 no. No, because look at verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That pretty much settles it, doesn't it? Okay, Jesus speaking, I am the first and the last. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, it's repeated again. Verse 13, I am the Alpha the and the Omega, the beginning and the end, The first and the last. Does anybody not see that the first and the last are titles that Jesus Christ takes unto himself? All right, now go back to Isaiah chapter 41. Look at verse 4 again, the end lines there. I, the Lord. Right, it's in those small capital letters, which means it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes erroneously pronounced Jehovah, but it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the sacred name of God, the Tetragrammaton. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Can I ask you a question? How many firsts can there be? One. How many lasts can there be? One. Therefore, If Yahweh says he is first and last and Jesus says he is first and last, then Jesus must be Yahweh, the Lord God. Now, friends, when you read the Lord there and you know it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, friends, understand Yahweh is the triune God. It is incorrect to identify Yahweh exclusively with the Father, or exclusively with the Son, or exclusively with the Holy Spirit. The Lord, Yahweh, is the name of the triune God. And the Father is Yahweh, and Jesus is Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Now, if somebody comes up to you and says, well, explain to me the Trinity. This is how I explain it to people. Say, look, there's a lot about it I don't understand, but this is what I do understand. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is one God, the Lord God. His name is Yahweh. One God. And three persons claim to be that God in the Bible. The Father claims to be Yahweh, the Son claims to be Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit claims to be Yahweh. Well, either they're right or they're wrong. And I believe they're right because I believe the Bible's true. So in, one, in some way, those three persons equal the one God. I can't explain it more than that because the Bible did not explain it more than that. We have one God and three persons. There you have it. So, I am the first, I am the last. Now, what's the reaction to that? I mean, you hear this great majestic news of God. God says, you know what, if you can tell me, he's questioning, it's the courtroom, right? And God says, explain to me this business about Abraham. Who raised him up? Who directed him? Who guided his path? Who ordained him to be the father of the Jewish race? Who, who did all this? Can somebody answer that? And there's all the idols in the courtroom. What do they say? Nothing. They're dumb idols. They can't say anything. <laughs> and so there's no response. But there's the idol worshipers there, right? And they're saying, man, I don't know. Who, who did do all that? With I must have been the Lord. He must be the one. He must be the first and last. So what's the reaction? Is it to bow down and worship him? No, look at verse 5. The coastlands sought and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. Now that sounds pretty good, right? They're, they're bucking themselves up, you know, they're pulling themselves up by their chests. But look at what all this encouragement is for. Look at verse 7. So the craftsmen encouraged the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it's ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Well, you understand here? They get this vision of who God is, of his majestic hand in history past. And they say, we've got to get away from this God. We've got to run and make ourselves an idol as fast as we can. I'm choosing the words right here because it's, it's, it's a strange thought for me to say. Human nature, as inherited from Adam, does not want God. Now, it's true that God has put a God-shaped vacuum or void in every heart. And in every heart, there's a longing for God. But we didn't get that from Adam. We got that from God. What we got from Adam... Wants to run as far away from God as we can. What we got from Adam wants to hide from God, wants to put on our own religious coverings, wants to hide from Him. That's what these people are doing. They get this vision of the Lord and His marvelous hand in history past, and they can't run away fast enough and make an idol. What's an idol? It's a God you can be in charge of. It's a God after your own image. It's a God you've made. And I love how Isaiah pours on the irony. Look, I mean, if you look at it there in verse, in verse 7, it's just great. I mean, it, it takes a lot of work to make a good God. It takes skilled workers, right? You need the craftsman. You need the goldsmith. You need he who smooths with the hammer. You need him who strikes with the anvil. that's four different craftsmen. You need to make a good idol. And then it takes organization and teamwork. It's ready for the soldering now. You know, the, the craftsmen have to work together. And then if you don't do it right, what might happen? Well, it might not be able to stand up, for heaven's sakes. Look at it there in verse 7. Uh, he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Friends, that's what it's like when you make your own God. You have to prop it up. Can we just kind of make a rule right here? If you have to prop it up, it's not God. You know, if you have to make it to where it stays up, it's not a Lord. We'll touch on that a little bit later. But that's how it is with the idols. Friends, We we have something in us by our... Our fallen human nature. Thank the Lord, He's transforming it by the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. But what fallen man wants with all of his heart is to be religious without God. To try to do something to soothe that void in his heart without really coming and surrendering to God in heaven. And so we make idols. You know, I think that we as Americans might be the best idol makers in the world because we feel so free to create our own gods. How many times have you talked with somebody and they say something like this, well, you know, I think that God, you know, for example, well, you know, I I don't think God will send anybody to hell. Now, you know what, that is like just the most plain attempt to make God in your own image that you can imagine. There's not a shred of testimony from the Bible that would say that God won't send anybody to hell. And so what are you doing? You're saying, well, I don't care about that Bible junk. This is what I think God should be like. And so that's what he's like. Just whatever I want him to be like. And that is not a single bit less crude than getting out the hammer and the chisel and fashion a statue and bowing down before it. You realize that our own opinions of God are irrelevant? Who cares? Who cares? It's what the Bible says about God. Friends, I just encourage you with all of your heart, ask God to set you free of your conception in your mind and to free you from every misconception you have of who God is. And say, Lord, teach me who you are from your word. That's where I want to know who you are. That's what they do. They got to make them and hold them up so they don't totter. Verse 8, here's a contrast here. But you, Israel, are my servant, right? He's not talking to the coastlands anymore. Oh, it's like, here's Israel. They're off to the side. You know, they're they're in the gallery, right? They're they're in there in the audience of the courtroom. You, Israel, you're not on trial here. You're just listening to this. You're my servant, you're different. Verse 8, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Friends, in contrast to the God-rejecting and idol-making people in distant lands, Israel, Israel is the servant of the Lord. Do you know what the name Israel means? It means governed by God. And the Lord says to him here in verse 8, Israel, you're my servant, governed by God. You're my, Isn't that beautiful? Yes, Lord, we want to be governed by you. And then look at the next line, Jacob, whom I've chosen. Well, that kind of pops the bubble of pride right there, doesn't it? Yes, we are governed by God. We're servants of the Lord. And then he says, yeah, well, you're Jacob, whom I have chosen. First of all, I chose you. Right? I mean, it was me choosing you. It wasn't you being so great, I chose you. Second of all, I call you Israel, but I also call you Jacob. Do you know what the name Jacob means? Something like conniving, unworthy, untrustworthy con man. That says you're Israel and you're Jacob. your servants because I've chosen you. And then he says, you're descendants of Abraham, my friend, and I've taken you from the ends of the earth. Again, the special place that Israel has before God, it's because of God's initiative, not because of Israel's achievement. Why is Israel different from the idol makers in the distant lands? It's because of God's work in them, not because of their own greatness. So here you go, verse 10, it moves on. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contend with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing." As a non-existent thing, for I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Isn't that great? Fear not, for I am with you. You realize that's a command, and it's a promise. What's the command? Fear not. That's a command. And then, for I am with you. That's the promise. You realize that fear, and worry, and anxiety are often sin. When God who rules over the nations, as he described earlier in the chapter, the God who chose us and loves us, as he described in the previous verses, when that God tells us to fear not, you've got to take it seriously, don't you? A God that mighty, a God that powerful? And then he tells you, I'm with you. What more do you need? I mean, if God is for us, Who can be against us? He's with you. Do you understand that? He's with you. Now, you ever have that thing where you're all alone in a room, maybe in the kitchen, you know, and it's kind of late at night, and you're busy working on something, maybe making yourself a sandwich or something, midnight snack kind of things, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, somebody taps you on your shoulder, and you jump. Ah! You turn around, and it's your husband or your wife. You you know, they're not scary people. (laughs) Why did it scare you? I say that for the most part here. (laughs) Why did it scare you? It scared you because you were all alone in that room, right? You've never had that feeling, that, that, that scared thing, when you're with somebody else. You only have it when you're all alone. When you're all alone, you're prone to fear. You're prone to this kind of fear and surprise and shock. Once you realize you're never all alone, the Lord looks at you and says, I'm with you. You don't have any reason to be afraid. Like the Lord's right there holding your hand. He's right there with you. And so he says, Fear not. How much more easily are you discouraged when you're alone? You're depressed when you're alone. Oh, that's how you feel, right? But you're never alone. Realize it. Understand, he's with you. And I love what he says there in verse 10. He says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. It's like, hey, it's me. Remember, I am your God. Remember me? You know, the God of all power and glory. I- I'm that one. I'm your God. Years ago, a a great author named J.B. Phillips wrote a wonderful book titled, and it's a great title of the book. Title's title is worth it alone. The title of the book was, Your God is Too Small. And, And in that book, he showed how when people forget the greatness of God, how easily they become dismayed. But God says, be not dismayed, for I am your God. And that's not all. Take a look at it here. Verse 10 I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God's strength and glory make him able to help us, right? But it's, it's his love that makes him say, I will help you. Isn't that great? And, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you got financial troubles here tonight. And I tell you, Bill Gates is able to help you. He's able. <laughs> there's no doubt. I don't think there's a single person here tonight You got a financial problem that Bill Gates couldn't bail you out of, right? He's able. Let me tell you, he's not willing. Let's just just cut to the chase. He's not willing. So, not only does the Lord have the ability, his love gives him the willingness to do it. Now, did you check that out back when we were talking about the idols that have to be fastened with pegs or they'll totter over? You got to hold them up, right? Look at how it is with the Lord in verse 10. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what do you want? Do you want a God that you have to hold up, or do you want a God that's going to hold you up? He's going to uphold you. Isn't that beautiful? You should never have a God that you have to hold up. Now, if I could... Isn't this one of the worst things in the way that some people, you know, go on and on about money and collections and things like that in the church? You know, God's got to have your money. God's program's going to fail if he doesn't have your money. On and on and on and on. You know what? They're presenting God as if he were an idol. As if he were a God that you had to prop up. You know what? God doesn't need your money. You need to give for your sake. But God doesn't need it. He's fine. Believe me. He upholds us. He doesn't need us to uphold him. So knowing all of this, friends, do we see the terrible nature of our fear and unbelief? When we're filled with fear, when we're filled with unbelief, we say to God, you're not with me. You're not the God of glory and might. You don't really love me. I know that's not what we mean to say. But when we choose fear, when we choose unbelief, that's what we're saying. Charles Spurgeon writes convincingly on this. He says, every truthful man feels that he has a right to be believed. He speaks upon the honor of an honest man. And if you say, I cannot believe in you, and even begin to lament that you have no faith in him, the reflection is not upon yourself, but upon the person whom you cannot believe. And shall it ever come to this that God's own children shall say that they cannot believe their God? Oh, sin of sins, it takes away the very Godhead from God. For if God be not true, he is not a God. And if he be not fit to be believed, neither is he fit to be adored. For a God whom you cannot trust, you cannot worship. Isn't it glorious that we can believe God and put our trust in him? And then he goes on to say, if you notice here, verse 11. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. God knows how to deal with our enemies if we keep our trust in him. He knows how to make our adversaries, whether they be men or devils, he knows how to make them ashamed and disgraced. Do you notice this? He says, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. You know, in a way that's an outworking of the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis twelve three, where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. You know, God has always crushed anti Semitic nations and anti Semitic movements, and in the reign of the Messiah, he's going to crush them completely. Babylon, gone. Roman Empire, gone. Hitler's Germany, gone. Gone. It's all gone. Because God says, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. And then notice this, he goes on and he says, verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Now isn't it great? In verse 10, God promised to uphold you with his righteous right hand, right? He's going to hold you up. That was God's hand holding us up. Now we see God's hand holding our right hand and giving us strength over fear, over doubt, and over our adversaries. And he's going to do it. No obstacle is too great. Look at it here in verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. Isn't that great? <laughs> you know, the Lord knows what we are. The Lord would say that to us all tonight. It's funny, you know, sometimes we, we try to pump ourselves up and you know, make ourselves, you know, we're worthy of God's love. You don't have to do that. Oh, Lord, I feel like such a worm before you. And God's saying, well, good, fine. I'm glad we can agree on something. You know, that's right. He goes, verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that beautiful? You know, yeah, you're just a worm now. You know what I'm going to make you? I'm going to make you into some big monster threshing machine that's going to go out and you're going to level mountains. You're going to be like the most stupendous earth mover the Lord has ever made. He's just going to be like a machine and mow down mountains and scatter their dust to the wind. God so helps Israel, so empowers His people that they're able to cut down mountains as if they were a great threshing machine. The point is clear. Nothing, not even a mountain, will stand in their way when God helps them. I don't know anybody else but the Creator we serve who can take a weak worm and make him a mighty threshing machine that can knock down a mountain. Isn't that the same thing Jesus was saying in Matthew 17, where he said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When, When we're walking in the Lord's strength, no obstacle can get in our way. No, but look who gets the glory of it. At the end of verse 16, you shall rejoice in the Lord. And glory in the Holy One of Israel. So now think of the the exiles returning from Babylon and God is there blessing them. Nothing can get in their way. Verse 17, when the poor and the needy seek water and there is none. And their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. And I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. The poor and the needy cry out. They're on their way back to to Jerusalem from Babylon. The exiles are returning. Their tongues are failing for thirst. And God opens up miraculous supplies of water. They're fainting under the heat. The sun is beating down upon them. So God miraculously brings forth trees that shade them as they go on their way. These largely are not fruit trees that he describes springing up, but shade trees to shade them from the sun. God can do it all. He can bring forth miraculous supplies of water and forests in the wilderness. And this is not, this is not uh, beyond God. It's impossible without Him, so He gets the glory when it's done. You know, God has supplies and resources you don't know anything about. He brings forth hidden water. hidden. Where did it come from? I don't know. The Lord brought it forth. Where'd that tree come from? I don't know. God brought it. You know, God loves, loves to surprise us from his hidden resources. And sometimes we make it tough on God, relatively speaking, of course. But we make it tough on him because we, we always got to figure him out. You know, you've you got a problem, you've got a trial, and you've got it all figured out how the Lord's going to fix this. And you just need to walk the Lord through the steps, right? And, and he'll, you know... It's a good thing he's got you on his team there, and you're helping him out with this. And the Lord, probably just to blow your mind, is going to do it in a completely different way. Well, your problem is that you've constructed five, six, seven scenarios. But God has to keep going back to the drawing board, figuring out a way to deliver you from his hidden resources. You you know, you're like the kid who who ransacks the house looking for the Christmas presents. So the parents got to keep hiding them, keep doing something to surprise you. Well, God will do it, but he loves to supply us out of his hidden resources. I love how the chapter ends here. Look, beginning at verse 21. We're back in the courtroom here. God started out in the courtroom, right? Then he spent some time talking to Israel, right? He's talking to his people. Now we're back in the courtroom. And who's on trial? Who's in for questioning? It's the idol's... And it's the idol worshipers. Okay, so here he is. There's the courtroom. It's full of idols. All these statues. It's filled with statues. All these idols that men bow down to. They're there. It's all filled with them. And the Lord's making his case before him. He's like better than Perry Mason. Look at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the God of Jacob. God's fair. He will not condemn idols, the false gods of the nations, and those who worship them without a fair trial. Come on, idols, present your case. Let's hear your side of the story. Bring forth your strong reasons. Let's hear your best arguments. Come on, I'll let you speak. So come on, let's have it forth. And God, he waits. And there's silence. There's no reply. Well, state your case. They're not saying anything. Bring forth your best reasons. There's nothing there. Why? Because they're dumb statues who can't speak. And so God says, All right, moving on. I'm going to examine you. Verse 22, you know, there's no reply from the idols, right? Verse 22, God continues his question. I think there's a big pause between verse 21 and 22. God's waiting. All right, come on, I'll get, I don't hear anything. Let's move on. Verse twenty-three. let me question you. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us the things to come. Show us the things that are come to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing and your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. You see God saying this to the assembly of the idols in the courtroom. He goes, well, come on. If you're gods, then you know the future. So tell us. If you're really gods, then, then, then you know the former things. You can make sense of the past, right? So come on, tell us. There's no response. (laughs) It gets dirty here in verse 23. You see it? He says, Yes, do good or evil. That we may be dismayed and see it together. Look, I don't care, do good or just do something. (laughs) But they're just a bunch of dumb statues. They can't do anything. My friend, it's all very clear. It's all it's picturesque, isn't it? I mean you'd love to film this, wouldn't you? Friends, here's the thing. We understand that very readily about a statue, right? The statue can't do anything, right? Do you understand that the false gods of men's imaginations are just as impotent, are just as powerless as that statue? There's nothing there. There is nothing there. That is the great danger of making up your own god. It's a fantasy you may as well bow down to a statue because it's just as real. I mean to say it isn't real at all. And idolatry is still an abomination to God. He says there at the end of verse 24, indeed you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I invited you to do good or evil, but you didn't do anything. God says, well, just do something, can't you do anything? No, nothing. And so they are nothing, and their work is nothing. And he who chooses the idol is an abomination. Though very few bow down to statues today, many still fashion a God of their own opinion and decide that that is the God that they will respect. And again, might I say that many churchgoers do this today. Alan Redpath says, The spiritual conflict experienced today is exactly of the same nature and of the same character as you find depicted here. The issue is still unsettled in the minds of men, though it is settled eternally in the mind of God. The world is still making every effort to put the best possible show upon its worship of the creature rather than the creator. Its worship is more the patronizing of the shell of religion than bowing in submission before an empty cross, an occupied throne, and the king of kings and glory. Verse 25. God's summing up now. I have raised one up from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name and he shall come against princes as through mortar and as the potter treads clay. Who's declared from the beginning that we may know and former times that we may say he is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your word. Friends, in contrast to the idols who can tell nothing of the future, the Lord knows, he knows that he will bring Cyrus from the north to conquer the Babylonians who conquered Judah and Jerusalem and took them captive. God would use Cyrus to allow the Jews in exile to return. The Lord knew, not the idols. Who declared from the beginning that we may know? Not the idols, they didn't have a clue, but the Lord knew. goes on here, verse 27. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem the one who brings good tidings. Friends, that was Cyrus. Cyrus brought good tidings unto Jerusalem. You can go home. You can go back. You can rebuild the temple. You can go. Verse 28. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them and there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. In other words, the courtroom is silent, right? Nobody can answer God. And then the verdict is read, verse 29. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Friends, apart from God in the grand scheme of things, all of the greatness of man is worthless and all the great works are nothing. And the idols, their molded images are just wind and confusion. Can I conclude with one final observation here? It's not necessarily a terribly brief observation, but it is kind of the last one. You could call this chapter the great I will chapter of the Bible. Because no fewer than 14 times in the scope of these verses does God reinforce his authority with the promise, I will. Can I read them to you? I'm not even going to quote you the chapter and the verse. It's all in chapter 41. You could look up the verses yourself. You could go through this later on and just underline the I wills in this chapter. But let me just say, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. I will open rivers and desolate heights. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree. I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. I will, I will, I will, God says. I'm going to do it. You can count on me. Been disappointed by I wills in the past, haven't you? If you're a parent, you have. You know? Go clean your room. I will. <laughs> right. We've been disappointed by a lot of I wills. You never be disappointed by the Lord's I wills. Now you know what's interesting about that. You got Isaiah chapter forty one. Turn it around. Isaiah chapter fourteen. That's the devil's I wills, aren't they? I mean, Isaiah chapter 14, this is what Satan said. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isn't that interesting how it switches around? There's nothing terribly inspired about the chapters and verses, but I think it's great how 14 and 41 are really opposites of each other. One's the I will chapter Satan. The other one's the I will chapter of the Lord. And the I wills of Satan are all proud and self-directed. But every I will of the Lord in Isaiah 41 is for the benefit and the blessing of his people. Though Satan was lifted up in pride and he proclaimed his I wills, how many of them came to pass? None. But each and every one of God's I wills will happen. Let me conclude with a quote from Alan Redpath. When God says, I will, he says it with all the authority of omnipotence. He has foreseen every difficulty. He has studied every obstacle which may come in his way. He has anticipated every possible contingency. He knows the weakness of the one to whom he makes his promise. And yet he says, I will. Praise the Lord his will in our life. Let's pray. We say tonight, Lord, have your own way with us. We want to walk forth from this room here tonight, Lord, thrilled with the certainty of your work, of your love, of your majesty in our lives. Lord, we just say that we will serve no foreign God no God of our imagination. But we ask, Lord, that you would be rigorous with us. Rigorous, God, to transform our hearts, to change our minds, to make us, Lord, followers of you as you are in truth. We ask that you do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.